welcome to the Creative Coaching Podcast, where we bring together coaches, athletes, former athletes, leaders, and influencers. Everyone has a story, and my hope is that when you listen to their stories, you will be inspired and live your life to tell your story one day. Today's guest is Alan Stein. Alan is a performance coach, a corporate speaker, an influencer, and also the author of a new book called Raise Your Game. We talked to him today about levels of self-awareness, emotional fitness, connecting first, then coaching second, and about getting up quality reps. I hope you enjoy this podcast and you look to get better every day. Welcome to the podcast, Coach. I'm excited to be here. It's great to connect with you. Alan, I really appreciate it. Uh, I know our community here uh, that listens and, and, and then listenership is growing day by day. And I'm so excited for what's happening with it. And it's an honor to have you on. And so uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, how were you introduced to the game of basketball? You know, basketball was really my, my first identifiable passion. Uh, my parents signed me up for a, a local recreation league, uh, I believe, when I was four or five years old. It was right around kindergarten and just fell in love with the game. And, you know, I was an incredibly active young person, so I played just about every sport under the sun. But there was just something about the game of basketball that I was always drawn to. And, and you know, it's pretty neat for me here 40 years later basketball is still a major part of my life, uh, you know, and, and having found that passion so early and been able to ride this wave for so long, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. So you talk about passion a lot, and I think uh, it's something that's, it bears repeating about what we do with our lives and how we do it. Uh, find what you love to do and do it for the rest of your life. It's kind of been an old adage that, that I think we've all heard, but then there's some, there's some actual, like, grind and, and work that goes along with actually doing that. How do you feel like you, you talked about basketball being your passion? Do you feel like you've transitioned your passion into what you into what you're doing for the rest of your life? Yeah, you know what I think is really important. Um, passion is incredibly vital uh, to being not only successful, but to being happy and to being fulfilled, um, to finding your purpose. But you also need to find what things you're good at. Yeah. And, and to me, what you need to do is you find find what you're passionate about, what you really love, and then find the things that you're pretty good at, where you have some natural talent, and then find where those two things intersect. And that's going to be your strength zone. And the more time you can spend in your strength zone, the happier and more influential and more impactful and successful you'll be. Um, and, and for me, you know, when I was younger, uh, that passion happened to be playing basketball and you know I was I was a pretty good player I was a decent high school player I was able to play in college at a small school down in North Carolina um, but then it was clear to me that uh, my talent no matter how big my passion was my talent was not going to take me past college as a player but then I started to develop a passion for the coaching and for performance training and found that I, I had some natural talent in being able to teach others and motivate others and, and coach them. Uh, so that point kind of shifted where that intersection was. And yeah, I was able to do that for almost 20 years. And then I felt that that point shifted again. And now that's why I do mostly um, corporate speaking and, and speaking to teams 
uh, about culture and leadership and cohesion. Um, so that point will always move, but half of it is passion and the other half is finding what you're pretty good at. And then if you can put it in repetition during the unseen hours to earn you know, the ability to do that at a high level, then you've got some really purposeful work. And, and as you said, it really won't feel like work because you love what you're doing so much. Definitely. So you, you mentioned repetition. Uh, I think we talk to players all the time and especially player development coaches talk about reps, getting reps, getting reps. And I think kids may or younger people may see that as like it's only applicable to basketball, muscle memory, all those type of things. But I think repetition from what you're saying, if I get am I'm gathering it correctly, you can apply it to the rest of your life. Is that correct? Absolutely. What I tell people all the time, and I, I say this to my very young children all the way up to the businesses that I speak to, repetition is not punishment. Yeah. Repetition is the oldest and most effective form of learning in existence, and that will never change. Uh, I think Tony Robbins was the one that said repetition is the mother of all skill, and it applies to everything. You know, when, when you're young, yeah, it applies to sports, but it also applies to your academics. Uh, when you're older, uh, it applies to being a parent. It yeah. applies to being uh, in business. You know, for me, when I made the transition out of basketball uh, into the professional speaking world, I mean, it's all about repetition. It's about getting stage time. It's about uh, rehearsing. I mean, I, I approach my craft of professional speaking very similar to the way a basketball player should approach practice and should approach games. And yeah. it's all about repetition. And, and repetition, now, they have to be quality reps and purposeful reps and deliberate reps, and you have to be very open to feedback, but that's the only way to mastery of anything. Very true. I like what you say about feedback because uh, we talk a lot about that on, on, on the podcast is feedback or criticism and that they're both helpful and that they're both, if done the right way, taken out of the tone and, and, and whatnot from people. Uh, you learn more about what you need to fix, what you need to change, what you need to improve, and also what you're good at. And so, yeah, yep. feedback is very, very important. So I, I, I see that, you, you know, here again with your book, and when you speak, uh, you know, because I've consumed a lot of your content as well, not just your book, and you talk a lot about self-awareness, and I feel like that's so key and so vital for the generation of players that's out there right now uh, because there's a lot of self-involved, but I'm not sure how much self-awareness and other awareness is involved. So how would you say self-awareness is connected to identity because that is a huge uh, kind of component of who these kids are as well? Most certainly. And I'm, I'm going to shelve that for one second and put it on ice because okay. there's just one thing I want to say on feedback and then we'll definitely yes, dive sir. into self-awareness yes, and that could end up, that could end up taking up most of our conversation because it's that important. <laughs> gotcha. But what I, I want, what players and coaches and anybody listening to realize is when it comes to feedback, you have the keys to the car and you're in control. Now you don't control the feedback that you receive. You don't control whether people praise you or criticize you. You don't, you don't control any of that, yeah. but you have absolutely 100% control on how you're going to use that feedback, uh, on what you're going to do with it. And high performers always choose to use feedback in a way that moves them forward and how it allows them to progress. So uh, if someone gives you some positive feedback or some praise, uh, instead of letting that make you arrogant and complacent, Use that to double down on whatever you've been doing is working, so do more of that. Yeah. And if somebody gives you some criticism, um, then 
take the valid points of that and use it to get better. You know, consider uh, when somebody holds you accountable or gives you that type of constructive feedback, that's a gift that they're giving you because they're wow. giving you uh, a gateway to being able to improve. And the, the highest performers welcome that. Uh, the, high, the best basketball players I've ever been around, they want coaches around them to give them constructive feedback and to yeah. show them ways to improve their footwork or improve their shooting mechanics. They crave that. And so it doesn't matter if, and, and there's a lot of formal evaluation in professional speaking. So if I go to a business and I give a talk, regardless of what their feedback is, because I don't control any of that, yeah. I can choose how to use their feedback to make sure that I keep getting better as a speaker. And to me, that's one of uh, the most empowering mindsets that you can have is no matter what the world throws at you, good, bad, or indifferent, you choose how to use it, and you can always choose a way that allows you to grow and get better. And that's all part of being coachable. And without, uh, you know, uh, I can't think of a single exception that the best players I've been around, and it's not coincidence, the best players I've been around are very, very coachable yeah. and very open to people giving them feedback. So I just wanted to, to kind of put yeah, that no, nail in feedback before that. we moved on because it's that important. No, it is, definitely. And I think that's part of the process that we talk about all the time. We say in the process, in the process. So because like when you start a situation, it's always a great time. So like there's a promise of what's to come. Uh, and then when you get to the promised land, that's another part where you're like excited. But in between the promise and the promised land, there's a process. And part of that process is feedback. How do I get better? How do I continue to, to grow? Because you, like you said, sometimes it gets to people's head. They take it the wrong way or they take it too far and the highest highs never being too high and the lowest lows never being too low. So yeah, great, Absolutely. great points of emphasis coach. So I'll, I'll go back to the other point, the other question I had for you, which I, which here again, just so vital and so pertinent in, in, in my estimation. And I believe in yours as well about self-awareness and how it's connected to identity for players. Self-awareness is the foundation to which everything else is built. I mean, if, if you don't have self-awareness, you, you don't know where you are at present and you certainly aren't going to have much clarity on where you're able to go moving forward. And, and, and you aren't able to have team awareness or organizational awareness if you don't have self-awareness and, yeah. and self-awareness has a few different levels um, on the most basic level, which is what I think most people are familiar with. You have an understanding of what things you do well and what things you don't do well. You have an understanding of, of your goals and your aspirations but you also have a, an understanding of your fears and your insecurities. Um, and you know what things you like to do. You know what things you don't like to do. I mean, it's really kind of the, the yin and the yang to every aspect of your life. And for most people, the good stuff, that's the easy stuff to think about and look at. You know, not many people are willing to do the very hard internal work of examining their fears and their insecurities and figuring out where those started and how they arise and how they're limiting you and how they're getting in your way. I mean, that's, that's some soul searching and that's yeah. not easy work to do, but it's vital to do. So that's one level of, of self-awareness. Then the next level is making sure that there's alignment between the way you see yourself and the way the rest of the world sees you. And yeah. this has nothing to do with pandering for people's affection or, or adoration. It's just making sure there's accuracy there. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we can talk in basketball, you know, you, you have a, a player that takes a bad shot and then you have a player that takes a bad shot and doesn't know it was a bad shot. Yeah. 
The, the second one's the one that's really dangerous. And what's even more dangerous than that is the player that takes a bad shot, but they think it's a good shot. And, and I know there's not a single coach listening to this right now that has an experience coaching a player that thinks they're a great three-point shooter, whereas you as the coach have a slightly different viewpoint of that. <laughs> and that's from lack of self-awareness. Yeah. That player actually believes they're a good three-point shooter, and they believe it to their core, but it's clearly not accurate. And so you, you have to have some alignment. You know, an example would be uh, if I asked you if you were a good listener and you said, yes, I'm a great listener. And then I asked the five or six people that know you the best and they all said, oh, no, Mike's a bad listener. That would simply mean you have no self-awareness, that right. you view yourself different in the way the rest of the world does. Uh, it's almost comical. But if I asked if you were a good listener and you said, no, I'm not a good listener, and I asked the five people closest to you and they said, yeah, he's not a good listener, you would actually have very high self-awareness because yeah. you would know that you're not a good listener and you would acknowledge that. And right. uh, that's, that's what's most important. Um, and then the last piece of self-awareness is having um, the tools uh, and the emotional fitness to be able to regulate your own emotions. So yeah. it's one thing to know that you're mad, but it's another to really find out the source of that anger. Why are you really mad? And then most importantly, how can you display this or just, you know, uh, to, to use this energy in a way that's going to be positive and not destructive. Right. So I'm a basketball coach. You're my player. Uh, you make a boneheaded turnover during practice. So I'm mad that you made the turnover. Now I have to ask myself, okay, why am I mad? Am I really mad because this 16 year old made a bad pass? Or am I mad because I've told you this 20 times now and, I, and you're either stupid or you're defiant? Yeah. And either one of them really irritates me. So that's <laughs> yeah. why I'm mad. Uh, and then the next level is, okay, well, me being angry at you for making that turnover, how can I communicate that effectively so that you know how to make the right play the next time or so that you get better and we grow from this? Right. You know, now the, the, the knee-jerk reaction for most coaches is I'm going to stop. I'm going to yell at you. I might even curse at you a little bit and degrade you a little bit uh, and then move on. And that doesn't do anything to make you a better player. So mm -hmm. I got to think, okay, I am angry. I know why I'm angry. I think he hasn't been listening and he's defiant, but now how can I actually use this to get what we both want, which is for you to be a better player. And all of that stuff. And I know it's a lot is yeah. kind of the, the collage that makes up self-awareness and that, that's what all of us should be striving for. And self-awareness is never something you arrive at. It's a constant process. Yeah. Uh, there'll be times in each of our lives where we're more self-aware than other times. Uh, I would tend to believe that most people gain some self-awareness as they gain life experience and get a little older. Uh, yeah. I'm definitely a lot more self-aware at 43 than I was at 33. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a process and I can promise you I'll be even more aware when I'm 53. Fantastic coach. Yeah, no, I think that comes with, uh, in the tough times in life, sometimes the situations we're presented, uh, really lead us to be more self-aware because so maybe a decision we made or something we did affected somebody else and we saw how it affected them. And now we have to really like reflect. I, I like what you say about emotion, emotional fitness coach, because I've always heard that, uh, emotions are like your kids you, you keep them in the back seat but you don't let them drive uh you don't let, <laughs> you know and I, and I feel like that's tough for us as coaches because maybe it's the stress the pressure all those things that we kind of either bring upon ourselves or our administration or somebody does 
And I think to keep those things in check and here again, you be the driver, they be in the back seat. That's always a healthy way. And then another thing you brought up and I, and I really kind of want to dig into that too, is kind of figuring out, you know, like you talked about uh, doing some soul searching uh, because you see the fruit of what you're doing, but you don't ever get to the root of it. And I feel like that as, as leaders, we need to be vulnerable enough to kind of get to the fruit, to the root of it and say, Hey, no, this is really what's happening. I need to get to the, to the root, pull it out, kill that sucker. And hopefully it doesn't come back because this fruit is terrible. It's really causing a lot of problems. So here again, coach, I, I really appreciate your, your, uh, you, you being able to break that down for us because I feel like it's so here again, as leaders, we want to be the best we can be for who we're serving. And I think that's uh, one of the biggest aspects of it. Yeah, and, and you can't serve others to your maximum ability if you lack awareness, yeah. uh, if you lack the alignment between the way they see you and the way you see yourself. If, yeah. if, you can't have the, if you don't have the tools to regulate your emotions, there's no way that you can do those things at the high, highest level. So if, even though it's self-awareness, it's being done in service of others, which is what's uh, absolutely most important. And yeah, you know, I'll say for myself, um, uh, I'm very amicably divorced. My ex-wife and I, we get along really well now. We're good friends. We make great co-parents. Um, but when we were going through the divorce, I mean, it was tense and it was tough and it was some painful times. And, and I actually went in for some counseling or therapy or whatever word people like to use. Yeah. And I ended up doing that for a couple of years. And it is without question the best thing that I've ever done. It's the best coaching I've ever received uh, because it forces you, as you just said, to dig to the root. It would yeah. be easy to go, okay, this marriage isn't working. Well, it's not working because you're not doing these few things. And, and, and I, you know, and, and that's just surface level stuff. When I really went back at, with professional help and started to unpack um, tendencies that I had, bad habits that I had, yeah. limiting beliefs I had, poor mindset, and I started to unpack that, then everything else started to get better. So it wasn't this Band-Aid approach it was much more of, all right, let's go find out where some of these things uh, originated from. And a good portion of them originated from childhood. You know, the yeah. way I was raised or certain experiences that I had led me to believe certain things, which then led me to behave in a certain way. And that behavior wasn't helping me or helping those that I was with. So you have to kind of go back and fix that. And, and, and I'm not saying that everyone listening to this should go check themselves into therapy, but yeah. it's very important to be willing to do that deep internal work to really yeah. find those things out. And it's so liberating and freeing uh, when you do. I am a yeah. thousand times happier, and I would like to believe a lot more self-aware and a lot more uh, uh, effective communicator today than I was before therapy. And that's helped me not only as a parent, uh, that's helped me as a coach, that's helped me as a speaker, uh, those types of things. It's helped me in every single area of my life. I'm so glad to hear that because, you know, around my way, we call it ministry. Uh, because yeah. we, we, you know, I've been married for 16 years and there's so much that you go through when you're married to somebody other than yourself <laughs> that you go through because it's easy to do here again, be, even if you're self-aware and you, and you're so keyed in on who you are and you're so sure of yourself, when you bring in somebody else, who's not you into your life, then you bring yeah. in some little kids into your life. It, it takes on a whole different meaning and you really, really got to, as they say, check yourself. Because uh, you can do a lot of uh, either great things or harmful things or just leaving people feeling indifferent about who you are, which is probably even scarier. 
uh, that that definitely, I'm, like like you said, Coach, you're you're at a better place, and I'm so glad to hear that. So, well, I appreciate that. And, and you know, one other thing to think about it. I think, at least in our society, <clears throat> most people believe that you go to therapy or you go to counseling after you've hit rock bottom and after you have a problem because that's what most people do. Yeah. But I believe in being proactive. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I believe in doing it beforehand. You know, some of the most, uh, the, the happiest couples that I know of, they went to marriage counseling before they got married. They went to marriage counseling before yeah. uh, things even got tough. I mean, you know, when, when you first meet someone and you're going to get married, you're in that honeymoon phase and everything <laughs> is amazing. The other person can do no wrong. Yeah. Well, that's when they went in to start digging up some things that might cause problems in the future. And they were very proactive. And right. it's no different uh, than in, in sport. You know, I made my living as a performance trainer because my goal was to help players bulletproof their bodies, which we would train certain areas of their bodies before they got hurt, not waiting for them to get hurt and then spend the rest of the time in the training room with the athletic trainer. You know, we would do exercises for the feet and ankles because we wanted their feet and ankles strong and mobile so they'd be less likely to get hurt. And uh, that's what I wish more people would do now is to start doing this work before it becomes a problem and headed off its path. Definitely, Coach. You're talking about just being prepared, not just ready. Uh, Cause everybody, yeah. everybody's ready for certain things like you talked about in a marriage and, and, and pre the, the engagement, all that stuff is all, you know, uh, fun and games. But when the work starts, cause that's really what it is. You're working, you're working. If you don't take care of some things, it doesn't matter who you decide to marry, not marry, not be with. You're taking that relationally with you all over the place in all kinds of relationships. And so, which kind of, sure. which kind of leads me to my next question, coach, what time of, what type of mindset, helps leaders from, you know, sometimes we try to foster certain relationships, but how can we foster more transformational relationships over transactional ones? Well, there were three coaching mantras that I learned very early in my career, and I'm thankful I did because they served me very well as a coach, and they continue to serve me this day as a parent and as a, as a business owner and as a speaker, and they tie directly into what, what you just asked. Uh, I'll give you the three, and then we can unpack them however you'd like. Okay. Uh, the first is that, that coaching 101 should be the mindset of it's not about me, it's about you. Yeah. Like Every coach should be able to look at every player they've ever worked with and be able to say it's not about me, it's about you, that I'm here for your growth, your development, your success. And that's why coaches, by definition, are true servant leaders. Uh, so that's one mantra. Uh, the other mantra I learned was you have to connect first and coach second that you have to make sure that person knows you truly care about them as a human being first and as a basketball player secondary that that you want to create a, a level of trust and and mutual respect and you do that first before you start worrying about whether or not they can make an offhand layup so yeah, connect yeah. first and coach second and, and then the third is that you live by the code as a coach that you either accept it or you correct it those are the only two things uh, complaining is not a third option. Uh, when you see something, you either accept it or you correct it. So if you're my player uh, and I see you going through a drill, if your footwork looks good, then I accept it and we move on. If your footwork does not look good, then I stop it and I teach and I correct you so that now you do it correctly. There's nothing in between. I don't just wait until later in the day and complain that all of my players have bad footwork or that yeah. all of my players take bad shots. If your team takes bad shots, that's a reflection of you as the coach. 
That yeah. means you either have accepted bad shots or you haven't figured out how to correct them from taking bad shots. Either way, it's not acceptable. So um, those mantras, I think, uh, lend to being in a more transformational and less transactional um, types of relationships because you're showing that you truly care about the other person and care about their growth and development and happiness. So I like what you said there about doing something about the problem. Uh, and I think as, as uh, and it, here again, it, it kind of falls in line to my line of questioning, in which I would ask, uh, how do we take, you know, as coaches, as leaders, as executives, whoever's listening, uh, how do we take ownership of problems so that our teams and our groups that we work with can take ownership of so- the solutions when we present them to them? Well, it all has to do with accountability. And yeah. first you have to have, you know, self-imposed accountability before you can hold others accountable. But what I think is most important in any area of life is making sure as a leader that your people know, well, first of all, as a leader, and, and you can change the terminology however you want, you should have the mindset that I work for my people, not my people work for me. Yeah. If I'm the CEO and there's 100 employees, that means there's 100 people that I work for, not 100 people that work for me. So that's, that's certainly step yeah. one. And then step two is that holding someone accountable is something you do for them. It's not something you do to them. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, holding someone accountable is the best gift you can give them because you're basically saying, hey, you're better than this. Yeah. I believe in you. I know you're better than this, and I'm going to hold you to a higher standard. I'm not going to be okay with you just getting by. So I think as leaders, once we, we establish that and, and your people know that you work for them and that when problems have been, you know, we've, we've established some problems, now we're going to hold each other accountable uh, vertically and horizontally, we're going to collectively hold each accountable uh, in finding the right solutions. And to me, that's, you know, accountability is, is one of the biggest puzzle pieces to creating a winning culture and a championship culture. Yeah. You know, everybody talks about vision and everyone talks about having high standards and, you know, well, that's great. But if you're not holding people accountable with love and compassion to those standards, then it doesn't really matter. And that's where I see, especially in the business world, there's a huge disconnect that you walk into an office and they've got this nice poster or this big gold plaque that has their, their vision and their mission statement or their purpose or their got, you know, whatever. And then you walk around the office for a few minutes and you see that people are not living up to that, that people are not behaving the same way that they claim. And if your behavior and your beliefs are not in alignment, then one of them needs to change. Yeah, no, and it becomes a joke to everybody in the room, <laughs> even in even in situations where I've been in education now for about fifteen years, and I've, I've sat in meetings where we're, we have these cool little sayings and, and mottos, and here again mantras as well, and nobody's following it to the degree that we are talking about it and presenting it to outsiders. And when in, you're in house and you know, like, no, this isn't really happening, it really kills morale. And, oh, yeah. and, you know, the accountability is so hard to, to actually apply because you're here again, whatever you're allowing and accepting you're, and you're not correcting, like you talked about earlier, man, you're just chipping away at culture that you tried to build. And, even, Absolutely. and so I think that's, you know, here again, what you're talking about. Uh, and, and it takes first, it takes as the leader, you have to have the accountability and the self-discipline and self-respect and acceptance to say, OK, here's what we believe. And here's, I'm living up to this. I'm yeah, working yeah. as hard as I, now I'm fallible because I'm a human being. I'm not perfect, but I'm doing the best I can consistently to live up to this. And because of that, 
and because I care about the people next to me and I care about our culture and I care about our organization, now I'm going to hold everyone else accountable to these same things. But you simply can't not, I mean, you can't hold someone accountable to the things that you're not willing to do. You know, you, you can't tell your team that it's important for them to be prompt to all meetings. And then you walk in three minutes late. Uh, as you said, that will, it will lower morale. Uh, it's a demotivator uh, and it's an absolute culture killer. Now, like I said, I'm fallible. So if I happen to show up late to a meeting, then I need to own it. I need to acknowledge it. I need to apologize for it. There needs to be a consequence for it, just like with anybody else. So it's, this has nothing to do with perfection. It has everything to do with progress. And that's really what folks need to do is they need to take these nice trifold brochures and these websites <laughs> and these beautiful plaques, yeah. and they need to make sure that that is the stuff that's, the way, that's yeah. the way the team is behaving every day and everyone is held to those standards. Yeah. So it doesn't even matter where you fall on the org chart. Everyone has to live up to those standards. And uh, the best organizations have vertical and horizontal accountability, which means yeah. everyone holds everyone else accountable. Yeah. Uh, mediocre organizations have vertical accountability. I'm the head coach. You're the assistant coach. These are the players. It just goes from the top down. I tell you guys what to do and you do it or you're in trouble. Yeah. The best teams also have horizontal accountability where players police other players, players police coaches, assistant coaches police the head coach. That's what we want. When yeah. we've created an atmosphere where everyone is open and vulnerable and transparent to living up to the standards and holding each other accountable, now you've got something really special. And if you do that and you have talent, that's what championship teams are made of. So you're saying a lot of great things there, Alan, and I think one of the things we, we look to do, I feel like in organizations, if we're doing those things right, we make other people the hero. We're not the ones carrying the uh, the cape on our back and acting like we're the, the be-all and end-all of whatever organization we're the head of, part of management, or whatever. Uh, and here again, you're talking about fixing it, fixing situations that really are, may get out of hand, could get out of hand if we're not checked. And I think great leaders, as they say, they run to the battle. They don't run from it because uh, I feel like that's something that uh, us as coaches, us here again, leaders, execs, whoever you want to put in that that pool there has to really, you know, when there's a fire, where there's smoke, there's fire. And, yeah. and I don't care what degree it is, run to that. Confront it. Well, I, it go ahead. It, no, you're 100% right. And I, I love where you're, where you're taking this. And to take it even one step further, the best leaders are the ones that can step out and things still run smoothly. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the, the true epitome of your culture is, and we'll just use the basketball analogy. That's the red thread that, that ties us together is uh, how does the team perform when the head coach is not there? Yeah. You know, how do they behave in the locker room? How would practice be if the head coach is not there? And if there's very minimal slippage, then that means you've got a really effective leader and a really effective head coach because they've, They've created standards. They've held people accountable. Uh, you know, they've empowered others. They've created a system that can keep on humming even when they're not there. Yeah. Uh, if there's major dip, you know, slippage and a major dip when the head coach or the CEO is not there, then you have a problem. Yeah. And you know, I speak uh, at a lot of events with executives and with CEOs. And and if I'm doing a retreat with a group of CEOs where maybe they're gone for three days, um, one of the questions I ask them is. You know, how many of you are a little bit nervous that you're here and you're away from your business for three days? <laughs> and inevitably, most of the hands go up. And I say, hey, I mean this respectfully and I mean this with grace and love. 
but that means that you're not as good of a leader as you're capable of. If yeah. you're worried that your team can't keep going for three days, then you probably did not do a good job training them, teaching them, pouring into them, that you probably have some holes in your culture. Yeah. You know, you, you should be able to go, man, I don't even need to look at my phone for the next three days because I know this team is going to run perfectly while I'm gone. Yeah. That should be every leader's goal. And it's really challenging to get to that point because, you know, our ego gets in the way for one, yeah. that we would all like to selfishly believe that we're so important <laughs> that if I'm not there, yeah. the whole house is going to crumble <laughs> because I'm, I'm so smart and I'm so, but that's, that's not what we want. You yeah. know, uh, the yeah. best example I have of this is a couple of years ago when, when Steve Kerr, the coach of the Warriors uh, had to go out with his back injury and he missed the entire season. Yeah. And in his absence, Luke Walton won the most consecutive games and they ended up winning the most games in yeah. NBA history that season. And the average person looks at that and goes, well, he must not be that important of a coach if anyone can step in and win. Yeah. And I unequivocally disagree with that. I say yeah. absolutely not. He's such a good leader and such a good coach that he created a championship level culture yeah. that could survive when he was out. And it was the next man up mentality that when I'm out, the next man up and, and even the best teams. I mean, you take a, a team, their best player gets in foul trouble or their best player is academically ineligible. The best teams still find a way to win even without their superstar because of that mentality and that's yeah. that's something all of us uh, as coaches and as leaders should be should be striving you know to achieve yeah i think what you're talking about too is how people usually they resist what's created for them uh they gravitate yeah. towards what they can help create and when you create an environment that inspires creatives and coaches and people who want to you know pitch in and do their part you, yeah you don't have to be around to see success take place it'll happen with or without you. And I think that's a, Absolutely. a vital and key point. So I, I really want to ask you this because I think all of us would like to think we all have an edge of some sort that sets us apart, a chip on our shoulder of some sort. Uh, what's your edge as a leader? And, and that helps you to get up and to speak to, to corporations and executives all over the world. I would say my edge is, is the work I've done to improve my emotional intelligence that I, I have uh, um, a firm grasp of who I am as a person, as a man. I have a firm grasp of the things I do well, but I'm also very well aware of the long list of things that I don't do well. Yeah. Uh, I truly care about others and serving others. And I do believe that I, I have things of value that can help other people become the best versions of themselves. And even if it's a very tiny niche, you know, of my area that I, I believe that I have things that can help people I get tremendous fulfillment in filling other people's buckets and giving yeah. them things uh, that, that, you know, help them move forward and help them become the best versions of themselves. So uh, I would say that's, that's my edge because it's what keeps, it keeps my flame on at all times. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah, there's always portions of every job that aren't puppy dogs and ice cream. I'm not going to act <laughs> like every second of my life is, is perfect, but I have a really, really good life. And I, yeah. you know, most days for me, it doesn't matter if the sun's shining or not, you know, or if I'm hitting red lights, like my life is a lot of green lights because life is really good. And, and it's not by accident. I mean, I've, I've worked hard to design a life that puts me in a position to share things that I'm passionate about and to pour into others and to learn from others. I mean, one of the things that keeps me going and, and I do believe 
gives me an edge. I mean, I'm a lifetime student. I'm a student in all different areas of my life. And that's something that that keeps me motivated. So uh, being a constant student, being uh, trying to be of truly of service to others and filling other people's buckets. uh, Yeah, I I would say that's that's what gives me an edge. And it's it's not even an edge over competition because I don't even play the comparison game anymore. It's it's not about does this give me an edge over you? This is does this just give me an edge over who I was yesterday? To me, that's what's most important. You know, I like what you're saying because I see, uh, I follow uh, Gary Vaynerchuk a lot. And, the, yes. and that guy, he's got an edge about him. And maybe it's his oh, language, absolutely. maybe it's his language, maybe it's, but it's in his eyes. Like I see it. I see something in his uh-huh. eyes that I feel like, okay, all right. You know, he, he you get buy-in automatically. And what you're talking about is when you said filling people's cup, that's so huge uh, because the, I, I think of it this way. The less you take credit for things, the more you can get done. And, and if yeah. you can go out there and pour that type of mentality into people and, and, and here again, servant leadership, all that stuff, I feel like, yeah, you'll have an edge about you because you're just you're just different by virtue that you're not stuck on yourself and, and yeah. self-absorbed and uh, thinking that your uh, ways, uh, your your best practices are best for everybody. You really have a yeah. humility about you. And, I, and that's what I gather from your book, from you, from every other content that you have. So I think that's that's fantastic. So well, I appreciate that, and I tell you what, I mean that that comes with uh, maturity and life experience because yeah. life will humble you. I mean, I, yeah. I'll be the first to tell you. In my younger years, I was very selfish, uh, very self-absorbed, uh, was very much in it for me. Um, and you know, I, I don't. I'd like to believe I didn't have any malice in my heart. I wasn't trying to be that way. I just think uh, many times when we're younger. That's just kind of the default. That's where we, that's where we are. And yeah. uh, over time, when you get older, and especially, at least for me, especially when I had kids, is when I realized that number one coaching mantra that I already shared with you: it ain't about me. Yeah. It's about you. you. You realize in this this big thing we call life um, that that we're only here for a very short time, and like the world just keeps on going. Yeah. I mean, if uh, and that's, and I think that's a, a good, it's a good humbling practice. I, I don't want Definitely. this to sound morbid because it, it's not, but I, I think about my own mortality and I think about death a lot, yeah. at least a couple times a day and not that I'm worried about it, but more, have I done everything at this point in my life to become the impactful father that I believe I'm capable yeah. of? Have yeah. I done everything to serve others? If you know, I'm flying to Las Vegas tomorrow, if for some reason my plane doesn't land and this whole show is over, have I lived the best life that I'm capable of up until now? And, you know, each day that goes by, I feel like I'm getting closer to that. You know, of course, there's a million things I could look back on my life and go, I would have, could have, and should have done that different. Uh, But I can't. So I don't worry about that. All I worry about is what's right in front of me and in the present moment. And to me, that's what keeps me sharp. You know, yeah. they say that, like, for example, um, if you're a tightrope walker, you know, in the circus, that it's important that you you recognize fear. It's important that you're a little bit scared that you might fall off the tightrope because that's what's going to keep you on the thing in the yeah. first place. So uh, to me, just the understanding that life doesn't go on forever and that this whole show could be over any moment now is what gives me a much stronger appreciation for life. 
and, and, and for the things and people in my life. And so I don't, like I said, I don't use that in a morbid way. Uh, I use that as a recalibration tool to say, Hey, I need to get the most out of today because tomorrow is not guaranteed. So like uh, what you said there about fear and people say, I want to be fearless. Why? Because most people that are fearless are absolutely lunatic in a sense. Uh, you have to have fear in your life. There's some sort of it to whatever degree. Absolutely. Just don't let it control it, you. It keeps you sharp. Yeah, just don't let it control you and don't let it overtake your life. And I think that's called courage and being brave. And, For sure. And, and opening up to say, yeah, I realize that I may not have all the confidence I need as of this moment, but that will change. And it will change yeah. quickly because I this is what I want to do. And if this is in the way, let's get it done. Or I shouldn't do that. Like you're right. It's, a, it's an alarm bell. So great point coach about fear i i just you know i don't think we think about it enough like you said death fear time it's limited it's at a premium uh, i think those things are kind of like what we all should kind of here again reflect on maybe not on a daily but if you can within your meditation time within your yeah. prayer time within whatever time you have reflect on that so i, I just i think it's great for for us as coaches well, and leaders to do that well i, I love that that you're that that you have an appreciation for terminology and using and words in specific ways because words are powerful. And and what I like to think to myself is, you know, fear is what will keep you sharp. Uh, Being scared is what will paralyze you. Yeah. yeah. So so the goal is not to be scared of anything, but there's nothing wrong with having a very healthy fear. Uh, But then going back to that awareness is understanding, well, where does this fear really come from? You know, I mean, it's funny since I love, public speaking so much but that's a major fear for most of the world's population yeah, it is. and people need to do some soul searching to figure out why is that yeah like why are you really because because clearly people know that you know it's not going to cause you any physical harm that yeah. you know getting up and speaking in front of people but it can be emotionally and mentally you know that you're worried that you're going to be ostracized or people are going to make fun of you rejection. and then you have to dig deeper and figure out yeah a type of rejection exactly and then you've got to dig deeper and go okay well well why does that matter why yeah. like why do i care if people met, you know, and we start to dig deeper and unravel it and, and then that's where we can really get to the heart of something yeah. so uh, with any of these things fear fear of any of this is going to keep us sharp it's the being scared that will paralyze us and, and actually limit us from doing the things we're capable of. Awesome, Coach. I love the way you said that. Now, because our time, we're here near the end, and every time we, we finish up a podcast, I make it a point to ask every coach and every guest uh, about their legacy because it's very important. I believe that as we're living, like you talked about, what are we doing for the people who we impact and we mentor and we serve uh, you know, whether it's our kids, whether it's our family, whether it's the people that we we lead every day, uh, what kind of legacy are we leaving? So I'd ask you, Alan, uh, what would you want your legacy to be when it's all said and done? You know, I, I think my true legacy will, will end up being my children. It, it will be, do they grow up to be happy, well-adjusted, uh, compassionate, tolerant, you know, contributors to this world in whatever yeah. they do, regardless of whatever they choose to do, uh, is the world going to be a slightly better place because they were uh, around? Yeah. And, and I think that even though I don't have any control over my kids, uh, I'm hoping that that I'm modeling that behavior for them. I hope I'm planting the right seeds. Uh, and those are certainly, I mean, that's my biggest wish in the world is that my kids grow up to, to, to be happy, fulfilled human beings. And and I think that will ultimately speak the most volumes to my legacy uh and then of course you know anything else 
um, whether it's, you know, uh, the book or, or work that I've done with someone, if it just impacted them in a little way, if, if something I've written or something I've said uh, allows someone to dig deep and find something inside of them that was there the whole time, has nothing to do with me, that allows them to become the best version of themselves, then, then I'd be good about that. And, and one thing that, that as I'm getting older, I'm realizing, you know, especially with social media, we, we all get caught up in volume and we get caught up in, well, how many people are listening to this podcast or yeah. how many people liked my Instagram picture? And, and I think sometimes we become numb to the fact that, you know, how many people listen to your show is not near as important as the people that it actually impacts. And yeah. if one yeah. person is listening to this show and one thing that you or I said makes their life a little bit better was absolutely worth the time invested and worth all of the effort that I know you put forth into having this show. Right That's on. what's most important. Yeah. And uh, I try never to forget that, you yeah. know, I mean, and, and of course it, it's always a tug of war. Like I love speaking on big stages in front of big audiences. I mean, that, that jives me up, yeah. but it doesn't matter if there's 2000 people in attendance. All that matters is if one person gets one thing that makes their life a little better and if you can string some of those things consistently uh, and you live a life of service, um, that, then to me, that's, that's ultimately the, the legacy that I'd, I'd hope I'd leave behind. But I also very much like feedback. I don't have any control or say in that matter. What yeah. people say when I'm gone, I don't, there's nothing I can do about it at yeah. that point. It's whatever they say. So hopefully you're living a good life and making good decisions that will, that will yield that. Fantastic, Alan. Raise Your Game is the book. It's written in a way that it's for a player, for a coach, for a team. It's written for in, in, the, in a way for executives, for any leadership in any organization. Uh, you, you can absorb so much knowledge and then apply the knowledge uh, back with your teams, back with your groups, and really get a lot out of, out of what, what, you, what you read and acquired in, in that book. So I, I encourage everybody to go out there and get it. Alan, I thank you for your time. I thank you for what you're doing for the culture. When I say the culture, I mean leaders, executives. I mean anybody out there who's in charge of anything or any group of people who works with people. Uh, thank you for what you're doing there, and I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Likewise, I appreciate you uh, providing this platform and letting me share my passion. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Creative Coaching Podcast. You can find us at iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, and you can even follow us on Twitter at Creative Coach 47. Thank you.